I want to start by talking about um, kind of what we pride ourselves as modern people on first to begin with. We really like power. We really like control. I think especially living in the northwest of England, we don't like the idea of other people making decisions for us. Like, we want to make our own decisions, thanks. And you guys can kind of live your life the way you guys want to do, right? We are in control of our lives completely. And in fact, when you think about it, like, for, like, people in all of history, we have the most power and control that anyone has ever had over our lives. Like, more than kings would have, even like 100 years ago, more than kings would have had. So we're quite in control. We're quite powerful people. And that can be a really good thing. Being empowered is a really good thing. But we might have strength. We might have power. But even for the most powerful, we surrender to many things in our lives. We just surrender to lots of things. And surrendering is an inevitability, be it looks or control or power in itself or money or intellect. We give our time to these things. We spend our money towards these things. We think and worry over these things, but spending time, spending money, spending emotions uh, on something uh, is, is basically is surrendering. If you're spending your time on something, you're surrendering your time towards it. If you're, spending, you're worrying and thinking about something, you're surrendering your emotions towards something. And we surrender to lots of different kinds of things. I mean, have you ever spent time, money, or thoughts, emotions on kind of your own beauty or on, or on sex, the ideas of sex or the ideals of sex? Of course, like we all have. Like, if you surrender to your own body and ideals of beauty or sex itself, like, you will always feel ugly. You'll never be beautiful enough. There'll always be something better to be out there. And when time and age do start showing, like, what are you going to do then? <laughs> have you ever been anxious about money? Have you ever spent a little bit of time trying to get money? Of course you have. We surrender to that, right? But if you surrender to money and stuff completely and ultimately, you will never have enough money and stuff. There'll always be more money to have. If you've ever spent time in relationships or at work trying to be in control or trying to have power, well, if you surrender to seeking power, you will always feel weak and afraid because you'll never have enough power, not only over other people, but you'll never have enough power of keeping the fear of not having enough power at bay. Or what about wanting to be clever, surrendering to our intellect, wanting to be seen as clever? You will never be clever enough and you'll constantly be fighting your own kind of imposter syndrome, being a fraud, being found out as being a fraud. But the thing that gets us, these are all really good, these all can be great things, but the thing that really gets us about surrendering to these things ultimately, like more than other things, is that they're often unconscious. They're kind of default. They're like the default switch kind of always on without thinking about it. We know like, no one would say, oh, I just love surrendering to beauty. It gets me everything I want. I'm super happy in life because I surrender my life to beauty. No one says that, but yet we find ourselves kind of constantly in battle with that over and over and over again. We're flicking through Instagram, and when we see that one advert on TV, we're like, ooh, maybe I should use that toothpaste because then I'll be more attractive to women or whatever the thing might be. <laughs> what we need isn't more strength. What we need is not more knowledge. What we need is not to be better. We don't need better things. What we need for people who are prone to surrender, for people who are going to surrender anyway, is something that's worth surrendering to. If we're going to surrender, if it's inevitable, let's find something that's worth us to surrender to. We surrender all the time to things that promise a lot but don't deliver enough. And I would rather not live like that if it's possible. So if we're going to surrender, let's find something that's worth our while, something that works in our favor. This is something that Mary found. This is what we're going to look at um, these next two weeks uh, in, in this text here. We've, Mary found that God was worth surrendering to. That's why Jesus came into the world, to make it possible for us to surrender to this God who's worth surrendering to. 
Now, Catholic theology would say like Mary is a saint, somehow like really close to being part of the Trinity, but not quite. Now, Protestants in an overreaction to that will say like, oh, we're not gonna talk about Mary at all then. So like Catholics think Mary is super awesome. Protestants who are not Catholic think that Mary like shouldn't ever be talked about. I think both are kind of missing out on what the Bible actually says about Mary. Like if we don't talk about Mary at all, like we're the less for it because the Bible thinks it's important and that's what we're here for. So we're gonna spend these next two weeks looking how this important person in our faith responded uh, to God, specifically how she responded when she was told of how Jesus was going to be born and like in spite of like how difficult that's going to be. What's really fascinating is that her response here isn't just kind of like, okay, cool, God, what's next? It's, just, it's like a, a poem. It's like a song. The piece of art that she creates out of the surrender to God uh, is, is a poem that she basically is talking about why God is worth surrendering to. She's told by an angel that although she's never had sex through the Holy Spirit, she gets to give birth. Isn't that a good deal? Hey, you get to give birth. You don't get to get all the good stuff with you, get all the difficult stuff. That sounds really good. Sign me up for that. But she gets to give birth to the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus himself. And her response to this insanity is surrender. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. So Mary surrenders because she knows that God's worth it. He's worth surrendering to. And the song she writes about this promised birth of Jesus tells us why. And verse 46, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in these verses a little bit. Verse 46 says, my soul glorifies the Lord. And, uh, and then she says, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. Now why? In verse 49, she tells us, for the mighty one, this is God, has done great things for me. He's done great things for me. Only if we understand how great God is about all the great things he's done for us, will we be able to say like Mary did, like I'm the Lord's servant, may your will be done. So God's worth it, Mary surrenders. We're gonna get to two reasons why this week. We'll have two more reasons next week. The two reasons we're gonna look at that Mary brings up is that God is mindful and that God's merciful. He's mindful and he's merciful. So we'll start with that first one, that God is uh, mindful. This is uh, starting in verse 46. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. Now, mindful means to pay close attention to, to, uh, to deeply concern yourself, to spend time to consider really, uh, to really see somebody. And what is God mindful of? Well, Mary says he's mindful of, uh, uh, of the humble state of his servant, of being a humble servant. That's what he's mindful of. Mary didn't say, my spirit rejoices in God for he's been mindful of how amazing I am. Or finally, God liked one of my Instagram posts. I am rejoicing in God. Or, oh, he totally shared it. Did you see that? This guy shared my thing. No, he doesn't care, actually. God is not really that impressed with all the amazing things we do. He's really not that impressed. He made the world, he made the universe. He doesn't really care that you were super nice to Janet from HR yesterday. But he is really interested in us, more than the things that we do. He's really interested in us. God cares about that very much. And what he's particularly mindful of is our humble state of being his servants. So the angel is telling Mary what's gonna happen. And it's important for us to think of what this required of her, not the romanticized view that we might have. It's easy to look at Mary's response of her being the mother of the son of God with sentimental eyes. And she's saying, I'm Lord's servant. May your will be done. And it's kind of like this angelic kind of moment. But what Mary was told through the angel about this virgin birth would mean she's gonna be outcasted, 
her sexual past would be brought up often. Questions would be raised about uh, what she kind of does in her own personal time. In her future, she has pain to look forward to, rejection to look forward to, being shunned. People are not going to idolize her. They're going to accuse her. That's what she gets. And this would fall on her son as well. And you know, as parents, it's really difficult when you find people who are harassing your children. During Jesus's ministry, the, the religious leaders are, will, will be talking to Jesus. They're like, well, Jesus, you know, we weren't illegitimate children. Kind of roll their eyes as they move on to the next thing. So she may not have been understanding all of this of what was going on ahead of her, but it's, it's gonna happen this way. And in some ways she knows now and in other ways she doesn't know yet. For Mary, being a servant of God puts her in a humble state. But she's not alone because God himself is mindful of her. So when we feel lowly, when we feel taken advantage of, when we feel poor, when we feel like nobody sees, God's mindful. God knows. All those moments in your life where you feel like I'm completely alone, nobody knows what I'm feeling, what this is like. God is there. He's mindful. He sees. And God is always on the side of those who are humble, always on the side of those who are servants, who feel the need of being poor and lowly. And I, I get it because I'm the same way. I think when we go through difficult times, we're prone to think that nobody else knows what it's like, that we're the only one who experienced this before. And you might be kind of right. Like it might be no other human has experienced kind of what you're going through. But God knows what it's like. He sees you and he sees you because he's with you. He's not removed. He's not somewhere else. He's actually there with you in the moment. I mean, Psalm 8 talks about a God who created the universe, the sun, the moons, and the stars, all this kind of crazy cosmic stuff. But then it says how God is mindful of us. So he's big and powerful. It doesn't mean he's far away. Psalm 116.6 says, God takes the side of the helpless. When I was at the end of my rope, he saved me. When we're in over our heads, there's God with us, always in a state of rescuing us, always in that state of rescuing us. Genesis 31 says, but God has seen my hardship, the toil of my hands. He's seen all those dishes you've done, all those nappies you've changed, all, all those times you just kind of grit and bear difficulties at work. God is with us. Psalm 10, 14 says, but you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider the grief and you take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. So when you've been victimized, when you've been taken advantage of, when you've been overlooked, when it feels like this world has done nothing but orphan you, not so with God. He's our helper. He considers our grief. He doesn't look at it and quickly move on and say like, all right, get over it. He's with us in it and he works through it with us. So can we say any of this stuff about money? We can't say any of this stuff about our jobs. We can't say any of this stuff about whatever it is that, that we are really interested in. Only God is mindful in the way that only God can be. And without it, we resort to surrendering to all sorts of things that just are not worth it. We sell ourselves short. So Mary is happy about God being mindful of her, but she connects that to being a humble servant of him. You see um, in verse 48 how they're connected here. He's been mindful of the humble servant. The only way God being mindful of us can make us happy is if we understand that we're actually humble servants. It requires humility. So if we're set on projecting how okay we are with other people, like to other people all the time, we can't actually say this verse with Mary. God being mindful of us and our lowliness wouldn't really matter because we're busy, too busy projecting of how great we are. So this really requires us to be humble. Humble people aren't okay all the time. Humble people are needy. They need others to work for them. They need others to pray for them. They need others to come through for them. Humble people don't think much of themselves. So when they're treated like servants, they don't get off in a huff. 
Humble people are more interested in others than themselves. And so they're more curious about others. They don't always talk about themselves all the time. Here's another thing. Humble people are actually more enjoyable to be around. Like I, as we all do, enjoy hanging out with humble people, not prideful people. There's a kind of joy too that comes from being humble and being okay with that. It's a joy of being honest with who we actually really are. All the energy we take in trying to undo all that, like we don't have to worry about that. We can actually be honest with us being humble. So God doesn't call us though to do something that he didn't experience himself. I think the best example of humility has to be Jesus himself, right? I mean, in Colossians, we read this about, uh, about Jesus. Colossians 1, starting in 15, says, the son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things and in Jesus, all things hold together. And how is this Jesus born? As a baby, a helpless little baby that if no one took care of him, he would die. Where was he born? In a barn, not a palace. This Jesus deserved to be seen as, as the king and to be treated as such, but he did not accept it that way. He was humble. He was a servant. Jesus was more humble than anyone else. And during his public ministry, he was harassed by the leaders, loved by crowds when it suited them. When it suited them, they wanted him tortured and dead. Jesus can be mindful of the humble because he was humble himself. He's walked in your shoes and actually gone further than anyone else that you know. So if you feel like no one else understands, the only one who can actually really say that is Jesus. No one has really understood what Jesus has has been through. So he can be mindful of the humble because he was humble himself. This God doesn't rule from a separate kind of ivory tower or move from our experience. He was with us. He is with us. So the claims of money, of sex, of power, of control, none of these are mindful of us, especially when we're poor. When we're feeling down, all those things kick us when we're down. You're not good enough. Be better. They make us feel worse. But God is mindful of those who need it most. And that is a God worth surrendering to because he knows what it's like. So God is mindful. God also is merciful. If we can look at um, verse 50, it says, uh, his mercy, God's mercy, extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. So why is this good? What's what's the deal with mercy? Well, mercy is not getting a punishment that we deserve. We all deserve to be punished. Mercy is not getting that punishment. So we've done some bad things, right? We think that doing some good things offsets this, kind of like... uh, carbon offset, you know, when you fly, like the energy we use, you can pay a certain amount of money to offset all the, you know, the bad things you do to the environment. You invest, they invest that money into green energy or something like that. Um, so if you get a return flight from Manchester to America, a flight we've done before, from Manchester to Orlando, for one person, you can pay 50 pounds to offset all the carbon kind of um, problems that you'd be putting into the air. So you do the thing you, real, you feel really guilty about, but then you pay for the offset and then you don't have to feel guilty. You're back to neutral. It's like carbon karma. Like you're good. It's as if you didn't exist at all. Yay. Now, it might be helpful for the environment, but we play that same kind of game with God. We do a bunch of bad things, and then we do some good things, and in our kind of equation, it all kind of equals out, and actually, maybe we're even a little bit better than what we started with. The problem, there's some problems here. First, we don't know how many bad things we've really done. 
How many bad things have you done? I don't know. I have an idea, but it's probably a lot more than my idea. How many good things will it take to offset that bad? And what's like the weight of the bad things? What's the weight of the... How can we figure that out? We can't. And actually, we can't, so we make the rules up ourselves. And house rules always favor the house. So I'm always going to make up some equation that makes me look good in the end. We've rigged the system. Actually, more than that, we've created the system. This is not a system that God has made. This is a system we make for ourselves to feel better. The second thing is, even if we're good all the time, the main bad thing we've done as we've, we've uh, rejected surrendering to the king. So this isn't just like normal bad. This is like really bad. This is super bad. It's cosmic treason. If the UK had a spy in Russia and that spy in Russia started giving all sorts of, of secrets to, to the Russians about the UK, would he be allowed back in the UK only to be put on trial and to be found guilty? What if that spy was like super generous and he sent Christmas cards to his parents all the time and he loved his neighbors and, and he recycled, but he still gave away those secrets? Would that matter? No. He's still going to be on trial for treason because it's really, really bad to do that. And he'd be found guilty. There's nothing to offset that. So mercy then is being a traitor and being found not guilty. Not being put in jail not being put out of the country, but instead actually being given a love beyond all others, being given a new life and a new family. This is how God works. He's merciful. And this is why God is worth our surrender. He's merciful to us. And that's good news for those of us who need mercy. Now this mercy just isn't kind of given haphazardly. It requires something, requires the the fear of God. Um, It says his mercy extends to those who fear him. So it doesn't just extend to everyone full stop. It extends to those who fear him. What is the fear of God? Well, the fear of God is uh, not just being afraid. In fact, the fear of God is probably the best antidote to being afraid. Another translation maybe puts it this way. It says, God's mercy is for those who are in awe before him. Those who are in awe before him. Have you ever been in awe of something? So there was maybe a good example of this was um, there's a painter named Mark Rothko. There's an example of his paintings. I had not seen any of his paintings in, in real life before. Well, I would always see him reproduce some books. And when I was um, doing art for my undergrad, like we would always kind of be like, what's the deal with this guy? He's just taking advantage of like modern art, just throw some colors up and people are like, oh, it's so cool. So we just see it like reproducing books like super small, like this. But then I saw it in real life. I mean, these paintings are like the size of this wall. It's like they're massive. They're overwhelming. They're like all encompassing. And there's just something about a reproduction that does not get to the thing itself. So when I actually encountered one of Rothko's paintings, I was in awe. It was like your entire field of vision is taken over by these colors. It's overwhelming. It was kind of dazzling. Can I use that word? I think it was dazzling. When I encountered this painting in real time and space, I was in awe before it. There was a vulnerability I felt. I was giving my, my energy to it, my emotions to it. My mouth was open and my eyes were wider. I was giving myself to this painting. I surrendered to it. When we encounter God, we are in awe before him. God is merciful to those who are in awe before him, who surrender everything to him. Without thinking about it, remember, we have these kind of autopilot default switches to our lives. We can project to others why they should be in awe of us. We're like, ah, yeah, I will find a way to slyly tell everybody how amazing I am. And maybe a good confession for me is uh, this Christmas tree for the light switch on. It's on its third hole now, by the way. The first hole, Michael and Omar came and helped and dug it out, and you guys were awesome, and yeah, it was, we were there like 10 times longer than I thought we were going to be. And then it fell over, and I had to go out and dig a second hole for this dumb tree in the rain. 
Yes, people are passing by. They don't care about me. You know, I'm like digging this hole. I'm like sweating. They're like, they don't care. I'm smelling. I'm, I'm all dirty. There's a reason, yeah, ruined shoes. Now, and, and it's, it's fixed now because people actually knew what they're doing, actually fixed it. Um, but in conversations afterwards I had with others, I brought it up a lot more than I probably should have. Now, why? Because I wanted people to be in awe of my dedication for them to see, oh, Greg is such a servant. He's, such a, he's dedicated to loving Trollton. He's, he's, oh, he just, he's such a good church planter, the guy who I, I kind of want to be like. Also, I felt like nobody cared. I felt like it didn't matter God was mindful of me. I don't really care about God being mindful of me. I care about everyone else being mindful of me because I want everyone to know how amazing I am and I want them to be in awe of me. And I didn't understand how it was that an act of mercy for me was even just to be there, to be digging that hole. That was an act of mercy for me to be involved in that. I wanted people to be in awe of me, not of God. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about things, especially talk about difficult things, um, but I knew my heart. And I was talking about it way more than I should have. And it could happen the other way. Not talking about something that's difficult could be another way of you showing others, oh, I'm going to be the strong person here. People are going to be in awe of how strong I am. Whether we talk about it or not talk about it, we have to deal with what's going on in our heart. And I needed to say sorry to God and ask him to continue to work in my needy, desperate, lame heart. I think we always try and, without thinking, because it's the default for us, we always try and project to others why they should be in awe of us. And we surrender to power or whatever else is not God. And in doing so, we miss out on surrendering to this God. We completely miss out on all the benefits from that. See, God presents so many experiences of himself to us. We don't need to travel to some other city and pay the entry fee to to some museum to see a painting that some person thought was really cool to experience awe. God is present in our world now. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The, uh, the, The skies proclaim the work of his hands. I mean, the morning sky with its sometimes bright light, it's actually kind of bright today. And if you get up really early, you get to see kind of like the sunrise and it's like the sky is on fire. When the sun is setting and the deep oranges and the blues make even stuff like red bricks everywhere look pretty. At night where you have the billions and billions of skies lighting up our sky, and it's easy, easy to be enamored with them. And this is just the sky. So if we don't see God's glory in nature, we're just not looking for it. It's not just those moments though, but also in closer moments, when we sing with God's people, like we're about to do at the end of this here, when we sing, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is there singing with us. Hebrews 2.12 says that this is Jesus saying, I will be in the assembly singing God's praises. Jesus' voice joins ours. That's amazing. We get to do that every single week together. That's, we should be in awe of a God that allows us to be a part of that. I think the problem is we're used to living in a world without awe. So many amazing things happen in our world. Maybe we're just kind of ho-hum about it. Even the fact that Wi-Fi is even a thing. Like, what? That's crazy. We should be in awe of that when it works. (laughs) I think we have to constantly retrain our eyes, our ears, and our lives to see the glory that God has pumped into this world so that we won't miss him. And for those who are in awe of this God, those who surrender, they get mercy. That's what we get. And God is full of mercy, and that mercy extends to all who are in awe of him. So I don't know, maybe you've heard of the metaphor of a trapeze for this concept of surrender before. So a trapeze is the, uh, you know, you go to a circus and you have people who are hanging up super high from these, like, these things that go back and forth. And if they drop, then they die. Unless there's a net there, then they don't die, but still really bad, probably. But to surrender means to put your full weight on something, to really depend on it completely. And so there you are on the trapeze, swinging back and forth, 
desperate, waiting for someone else to catch you. And if they don't catch you, you're going to fall. If you fall, you die. Again, unless there's a net there, but you could still probably like, I don't know, sprain an ankle or something. So there's something at stake here because you're there swinging, going back and forth, completely disoriented. You can't see the person who's going to catch you. And this is us in life. We're up high. It's easy to fall, just desperate for something to catch us. Left to our own, we look to things to rescue us, anything, because we're just, we're, we're really afraid we're going to fall. Power, money, comfort, beauty, or maybe we think we can rescue ourselves. All of this is a flight from what's worth really surrendering to. There's a lot at stake. Do we have faith in whatever else there is to catch us? Do we have faith that money's really gonna catch us? Do we have faith in our jobs to really give us that fulfillment in our lives? I mean, what's the track record of that thing in the past? Has money always come through for you? Has your job always come through for you? Has your family always given you all that fulfillment that you need? Those are all good things, but they're never going to be the ultimate thing. See, God never misses us, ever. He's always mindful. God will never let us fall. He is merciful. It's just who he is. But if we decide to depend on other things, we will inevitably fall. We will. And that's going to happen to all of us. But even in that, God doesn't leave us there. He still picks us up, brings us back to the top of the trapeze, says, let's try it again. When we find ourselves up there swinging back and forth again, he's there and he's merciful. And his mercy extends to us and catches us. It's his grip on us, not our grip on him, his grip on us that rescues us from plummeting, us, plummeting to our death. Another way that Mary describes God in verse 47 is as her savior. As her savior, God just doesn't give us another option of how to live. He rescues us from surrendering to all the things that promise life, but really deliver chains. Why would we willingly choose to surrender to something that will give us less freedom, less joy, and less life? And yet we do. We do that all the time. So we need God to actually rescue us, not to give us the option of rescue or the possibility of option or the possibility of rescue. We need God to actually rescue us. And the birth of Jesus is the start of that rescue plan. Jesus will be born and he'll teach others about how only he heals and rescues. He will heal others and rescue them while he's on earth. And he'll actually win us to himself by dying and rising again, proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has our best at heart and nothing we can do will stop him from loving us. And more than just being an example of that, Jesus' death and resurrection actually rescues us. That is Jesus, that's God's grip on us. So by ourselves, we get stuck in surrendering to all these things that steal our life from us. And Jesus wants us to experience real life the way it was intended with all its fullness. So he had to rescue us. There's no other way. And that's how we with Mary can say God is our savior. That's how we can glorify in God being our savior. That's a God worth our surrender because he's mindful and he's merciful. And the way we can surrender is only because he surrendered first. He surrendered in his birth, in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Through what he's done, we get to be rescued. And this table is a way for us to remember that the only way we can get the life that we want is to surrender to the one who gave his life for us. So mercy is not getting a punishment we deserve. The only way this can be our life is because Jesus took on that punishment. And we need to continue to live in that, remember that, which is why we do this every single week, because we're so prone to forgetting. We reject surrendering to anything less than God who surrendered his all for us. And on this table, not my water, but the other stuff, we see the bread which represents Jesus' body. 
Jesus' body was broken so that our lives would not be. And the cup represents Jesus' blood that was poured out so that we wouldn't get all the bad stuff like wrath and punishment, but we would get to drink in all the good stuff, the new life that only Jesus gives. And as we take the bread and dip it into the wine or the juice, what we say is as much as my body depends on bread to live, as much as my body depends on drink to survive, that's how much we depend on you, God. And even if, I mean, none of us have lived that out this week, right? And so as we walk up, we confess, God, I'm sorry we didn't live that way. Please help me to live more in that way this week as we go. And so in an act of surrender, as we sing each week, we'll, we'll continue to do this we'll con- and continue to ask God to be mindful and merciful of us. So if you haven't yet surrendered to God um, and haven't yet um, been in awe of him, we don't want you to do something you don't believe in, so please don't come up, but think about maybe what it could be to live a life like that maybe. Now for everyone, whether it's your first time coming up or your hundredth time coming up, we say this at the table, God, you are mindful. God, you are merciful. We thank you for this and we surrender to you. Let me pray.